thank you to yet another episode of the Brain Droppings Podcast. I am your host, Joe Show, and tonight I have a bit of a detraction from comedy. In fact, I couldn't go any further in the opposite direction if I wanted to. Tonight's topic is informative, educational, and above all else, it is a serious topic. Um, tonight, episode 11 is deemed the opioid crisis. This is a real issue facing the country and the world as a whole. Each day we hear or read stories of fatalities from overdose and new drugs being introduced that are more potent, more addictive, and even more fatal. In tonight's episode, I will welcome Kate to the show for an informative hour of discussion on the epidemic. We'll cover topics from identifying which drugs are most commonly abused, treatment options available to people wrestling with this addiction, breaking down the fourth wall, which is stigma, and how to identify and treat an individual you suspect is overdosing. We'll also look at steps that are being taken to help, that are being taken to help combat this epidemic. Not all shows I do here are lighthearted. The idea behind starting Brain, Brain Droppings was to create a variety-based podcast that wasn't beholden to any one genre, but instead to choose topics ranging from comedy to education to keep you, my listeners, engaged and interested while fueling my desire to use this platform to have fun and get the word out. So without any further waiting, I bring you Brain Dropping Season 1, Episode 11, The Opioid Crisis, and my guest tonight, you heard her on one of the previous incarnations, obviously far more lighthearted, but... Nevertheless, I'm going to have uh, Kate with me tonight, and she will discuss how educated she is, how in the trenches she is, how many years of experience she's been doing this. Um, nobody says it better than you, Kate, so I'm not going to try to trip over your resume. I'd rather you start by telling our listeners your background. What qualifies you to be on this podcast with me tonight? Thanks, Joe. I um have been in the field of addictions for a little bit over 10 years now. Um, I've worked in different levels of care from working in a residential working um, halfway house that was post-detox and stabilization where men and women would come and continue working on their recovery while we would get them um, stabilized and back into the workforce. So it was community living setting. Um, I've also worked as a director of an opioid treatment program, otherwise known as a methadone clinic. Um, and I think the word methadone immediately puts stigma in people's um, minds. So we like to call them opiate treatment programs, opioid treatment programs. Uh, I was there for a couple of years and I've also worked uh, as a human resources or an employee resource partner for a, um, a healthcare company that works with opioids. And I'm currently a compliance manager with that same company. And my job now is to oversee the regulatory, um, whether it be state or federal, um, you know, guidelines, regulations that govern um, medication assisted treatment. And I do that throughout the Northeast. Super. And I think you're kind of short selling it a little bit because you know, I'm married to Kate, so I have a day-to-day -day interaction with her, and I've seen her um, through this career arc kind of be in the weeds, so to speak, with patients that are going through treatment, um, you know, forging bonds, championing their causes and their, their 
completion of these programs and also mourning the loss of patients that were not successful in beating the demons that, that drug them into a treatment facility to begin with. So I think the best place to start tonight's episode, Kate, is to really start out with some definitions. You know, and I think, I think everybody has an idea as to what are opiates, but what exactly is the history behind opiates? What are the most commonly used and abused opiates that you see through your treatment facilities and working with patients in the past? And, you know, currently you, you still do patient charts. I know that you do that because I'm not allowed in the room when you're doing it. Thank you, HIPAA. Um, I lose my wife for hours at a time when she's doing her patient charts. But I know that, you know, that there's a specific grouping of pain medications that have been abused. Uh, say, you know, if we drew the line back 25 years and went back to like 19, 29 years, 1990, um, and looked at the opioids that you see most commonly used and abused, not necessarily the, the path in which an individual has used and abused, but just the, the titles of these drugs. What, is, what are some of these drugs that are, that are being abused? So you have, um, you have prescription painkillers. Uh, they are things, um, you know, medications like oxycodone, um, you know, hydrocodone, which is Vicodin, codeine, um, morphine, and the list kind of goes on and on. So these were commonly prescribed mm -hmm. pain medications that, you know, if you had your wisdom teeth yeah. taken out, people would give you Vicodin. Yeah. Um, if you had a minor outpatient surgery, you might even be uh, prescribed Percocet as, for a painkiller. So maybe walk the, the people that are listening through, you know, the, the, the path with those two specifically, you know, from the dentist's office and the doctor's office. How did this become an issue, these opioids? So uh, when I had my wisdom teeth taken out, my dentist cut me a, a prescription for, say, 20 Vicodin. Um, I don't know what the strength was, but it was to, to, to numb the pain, kill the pain post-surgery. How does that was there, a, was there an issue with doctors over-prescribing back in the day, and that kind of fueled what we're seeing today? I mean, I know that they've always, there's always been an addiction problem worldwide. It's not necessarily yeah, just U.S. I definitely US want to be careful about, you know, separating or not placing blame um, on, you know, one source. Um, I think, yes, um, as a country, We've really struggled in the past with over-prescribing. Uh, like you said, somebody would get their wisdom teeth out. They'd get a, you know, a prescription for Vicodin. Um, you know, somebody would have a minor day surgery and get, you know, let's say, you know, Percocet. Um, but they would get refilled and refilled. But that's not just the way addiction occurs. There's also you know, being brought up in that environment um, sure. may never have gotten prescribed an opiate, but when you're brought up in that environmental factor, um, it, you know, that plays in too. So it's a variety of different, um, different issues. If we're going to talk about um, prescription painkillers, I think. We're well, I think those are the ones that people are most familiar with the names. I mean, that, and obviously the street drug names of them being heroin, fentanyl, carfentanil, uh, I'm sure there's others I don't know. Those are just the three primaries that I hear the most on the news. Currently, with the, the biggest um, thing we're looking at is fentanyl. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a cheap knockoff opiate, right, that's mass-produced in China? It's a synthetic opiate. 
Right. And it's, it's cut into a lot of the other drugs, which is what's fueling this issue even further, right? Because it's highly addictive. Right. Um, so when you say cutting into other drugs, we're looking at um, cocaine. Uh, you know, very commonly, uh, we will have um, people who say they only use cocaine. Um, you know, this is back in the day that I didn't work in just opioid treatment. Sure. Um, that would come up positive for heroin, and it's because it's cut. Um, now, do they do that because cocaine is not a physical, a, a physically addictive drug? It's more of a psychologically addicted drug, whereas the opioid creates more of a physical draw for going back to the well? I can't really speak to that. I don't. That seems to be the logic, though. I mean, if one of them doesn't make you addicted, but I want you to keep buying cocaine for me and I add an addictive additive to that but drug. Cocaine's extremely addictive, too. It just doesn't have the physiological um, addiction. It has more of a psychological addiction. Ah. So to kind of look at, you know, look at that train of thought, amphetamines are being cut now with fentanyl. Ah. So you have, you know, high school, college-age kids who, you know, need a little kick to take, you know, uh, their exams and to study and to prep. And they, you know, they buy street um, Adderall and they're finding now, um, especially here in Massachusetts, um, in the Northeast, that it's being cut with fentanyl in children, I should say, you know, teens, young adults um, actually are, are dying of fentanyl overdoses. So in the tree of opiates, are some more addictive than others or are they all equally addictive? Opioids, however you cut them, it's the strength. Ah. Um, fentanyl is a far stronger opioid um, than, let's say, Percocet, um, you know, Vicodin, even heroin. Um, I have multiple patients that don't use heroin. They use straight fentanyl. Wow. Now, on the prescriber side of the, the fence, you know, you and I were talking off podcast about some of the safeguards that are now being imposed uh, for prescribers in regards to trying to work together as a community of prescribers to identify those that are doc shopping, so to speak, or script Mm -hmm. shopping. Um, And those are people that will visit several different doctors to get several different prescriptions for the same drug to maintain a habit. Um, And so what, what what has the federal government put in place most recently that's helping to get doctors to, you know, identify those that are job shopping. I, there was an acronym you used. Was it PMP? Yeah, it's the Prescription Monitoring Program. It is a database um, that prescribers can access. Um, even um, opioid treatment programs can access. Any um, you know, psychiatrist, whoever is prescribing. Um, and they can actually put your name and your date of birth into the system and it will pull up um, about a year's worth of any prescriptions that you received, um, you know, that are opioids, benzodiazepines, um, you know, methamphetamine, you know, not methamphetamines, um, it could be Ambien. Uh, so basically, the doctors can now see when you got it, where you got it, who prescribed it, what the quantity was, and how often you're supposed to be taking it. Uh, it's much more heavily regulated that it gets done versus maybe 10 years ago um, where you did see many people doctor shopping and would go doctor to doctor and have multiple opioid prescriptions. Uh, Now the doctors are um, supposed to be, 
and I can't speak to whether or not everyone's doing it, but they're supposed to be running the PMP anytime they prescribe. Gotcha. It'd be nice if they could figure out a, a way, you know, with the advances in technology that we have today, whether it be a robo, rob, uh, robo prescription robot in hospitals that's delivering prescriptions or prescribers in the office. If there was a fail safe in the software that forced the prescriber to visit the PMP database before being authorized to write the script, that would be that would help with compliance, you know, from a compliance perspective, making sure that your prescribers are actually taking the steps necessary to to really eradicate that whole doctor shopping genre. But one of the uh, one of the topics that I, I wanted to bring out and have you say in your own words is one that I've learned in our time together as a couple in your education of me, um, who came from the knuckle dragging understanding of addiction and um, the, the throes of it is that when we first met, I believed that addiction had its own socioeconomic bracket that it affected most. And one of the most eye-opening things that you've taught me is that there are no socioeconomic boundaries that addiction touches. It touches all socioeconomic boundaries, whether you're from a rich family in the suburbs, a poor family in the inner city, a rural family in the middle of America, or you're a man, a woman, middle-aged, child, elderly, this addiction touches all. Isn't that correct? Yes, it does not discriminate. Addiction can touch anybody at any time, um, whether you're aware that it's there or not. Uh, I can't tell you how many patients um, that I've come across that are successful lawyers, uh, they have successful companies, they're business owners, they, it touches everybody. And I think, that's, I think that's part of the consciousness of this country in recent years. You're starting to see, and this is leading us into the next topic, which I'm going to throw a feeder out for Kate because she likes to know these topics before I just throw them at her. You should see the faces I'm getting. Um, stigma is going to be the next topic that I want to talk about, Kate, because one of the things that I see on a day-to-day -day basis is there is a cross-section of society that either fails to educate or fails to get woke for the young folks in understanding that addiction is not necessarily a choice. People don't choose to be addicted to drugs. Um, some people are genetically uh, prone to addiction. Some people, to your point, come from backgrounds that foster it and others fall into addiction, whether it be through that day surgery or that, that dental visit where the prescription drugs create such a good feeling and they continue to, to use. And then that spirals when the prescriptions run out, then we're buying a street version of that drug, which to your point earlier can be cut with another drug. And then that spiral of addiction can, can really get out of hand. So with stigma, how do we, or how do people in your profession, not we, because I'm, you know, I sell candy people and I do a podcast, but people like Kate that are at the forefront of, you know, the opioid crisis, is it just education? Is it continued education? Should there be an ad campaign as in your face as the Stop Smoking campaign Absolutely. for awareness? Talk to, talk to the people about that a little bit, Kate, about what can be done to help rid our society of the stigma of addiction so that we can become more compassionate as people. 
I don't even know where to begin. Well, take um, it. it's like it's, it's like a, anything. It's take pieces. Very, no, it's a very passionate subject, stigma, um, especially being in the field and seeing what I've seen over the past ten plus years. I think it's very easy for people to sit back and judge others, um, but it's far more difficult to understand. Um, it's not a simple, yes, it's a disease, yes, it's a choice, no, it's not this. It, it, it doesn't, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Um, people are dying. We're talking about more than 130 people every single day die in the United States after overdosing from an opioid. Um, That's incredible. There is no room for stigma. There's no room for your opinion. But how do we fix it? Do we, class, we, do we classify we, it? We talk about it. We talk about it every single day. Like you said, there are ad campaigns. Um, people have to stop coming out of this you know, ideal that it's not going to touch my family, so I'm not going to discuss it with my children. That should be a conversation that's being had on a regular basis. Um, it, gets it should more, be as regular as the birds and the bees discussion with your children. It works into conversations a couple times a week. That's the fact. We have kids who are using as young as eight or nine years old. Which is insane. And it really, you know, the funny thing is I live in rural New Hampshire. And even in my area, there are reports of young children, 12, 13, 14, overdosing or being, you know, coming to school high and being, you know, being caught, so to speak, in that. I I personally think that if you look at the arc of addiction and compare it to the arc of alcohol addiction, alcoholics. There was a stigma in the 30s, 40s, and 50s regarding alcoholics, that it was a choice. They chose to, to be this way, and that's how they were. And it took a long time for alcoholism to be viewed more as a disease and less as an addiction. I wonder if changing the narrative somewhat might aid in, in breaking down some of the walls of stigma in regards to people that have yet to People be, need to be educated, and they need to be heavily educated, and they need to understand that just as I wouldn't go to a doctor and argue a diagnosis of lymphoma with, you know, stage four, however it may be, people need to stop challenging the idea that addiction is not a disease. Right. It's scientifically proven. It's in the, it's, it's, I won't even go off on a rant. It's a disease at the end of the day. Yes. Do some people make a choice? to use at some point in the beginning? Absolutely. Is that choice ripped away from them after that first time? Absolutely. Because the first time you use an opioid, it changes the neural pathways in your brain forever. And you continue to use and you continue to use because all you want to do is feel normal. So it's a disease in the sense that it changes the neuropathic channel of your brain. And talk about the medical side of it a little bit. How do opioids interact with the human body? You know, so you, you kind of alluded to it a little bit a, a second ago where you said that it, it changes the neuro pathways of the brain. So if I were to ingest an opioid today, what would happen to my brain? What, where, what is it attached to? What is it, you know, how does it take its hold inside a human? So, an opioid binds to the body's opioid receptors, which are in your brain, um, that control your pain and control it's a, you know, the regulation of your emotions. Uh, what happens when somebody overdoses is that 
the entire receptor is if you covered can, in essence. Yeah, I'm trying to make it very Locked. simplistic. It's just think of or a turned blanket. Up. Yeah, it, it, a blanket covering the receptor. It, that's when the the overdose happens because nothing else can get in. Right. That's why we talk about and we can talk about it later. You know, uh, reversing the uh, opioid overdose. Sure. Um, pulling that opioid off the receptor so the person can now breathe again. Right. Um, so do you damage these receptors each time you use? Does it build a cal? You know, again, I'm using basic terms so that people can understand it. But, you know, if I keep using my hands and I'm using a hammer and I'm a carpenter, right? Within a couple of months, the inside part of my hand becomes callous. My hand is building up a tolerance to the continued use of the hammer. Is that kind of how your neuro pathways work where if you're continuing to use the drug, they continue to deaden, so to speak, like turning the volume down on them. So you require the opioid to feel to your term normal again. Is that, is that part of it or no? Going back to the opioid receptors um, that control emotions, we're talking about, um, you know, the euphoria of being high is, you know, feeling euphoric, feeling happy, feeling you know, like you can conquer the world. Those, you know, that's where your your good, feel-good yeah. um, neurochemicals come from that produce happiness and, and elation. So like um, dopamine, effect, um, oh, what's that? Serotonin. Serotonin. Um, so when, you ha- when your body learns to depend on an opioid to produce those chemicals and you take the opioid away, it doesn't know how to produce them on the same level as the opioids did. So a lot of um, patients who come into treatment uh, in early recovery have symptoms of depression um, Uh, and anxiety. So in essence, it's not only is it blocking it when you're using the drug, but when you're, when you're detoxing, when you're, when you're choosing treatment uh, or say you're fiending, you know, you don't have the drug available to you, but you're not ready for treatment. These receptors are producing the normal levels from prior to using drugs, and that's not enough to to get you to that next level? Or is it that they stop producing those feel-good levels of dopamine? And That, it's getting a little too medical for me. Oh, sorry. So I I don't want to misspeak. Um, What I do know is that the opioids create a state of euphoria. Mm-hmm. When you take that away, um, the brain does not know how to produce those neurochemicals as they did before the opioid was introduced. Gotcha. I'm, and, and totally fine. We'll get off the subject. My, my question was just simply, does it, does it struggle to meet the high level? And that's what causes people to feel normal. But, you know, that's, that's a topic for a different day. But more importantly, and we kind of alluded to it a little bit ago, which was how to rip the blanket off these neurotransmitters if somebody is suspected of overdosing or is actually overdosing. Um, are there, is there a product out there, a medication, or is there something that, you know, I'm walking through the streets of Boston, right? I'm, I'm somewhere outside of, and I'm not going to name a community because I don't want to be on somebody's social justice hit list, but I'll just say that I'm walking through downtown Boston and I happen to see an individual who's unconscious on the ground and through quick assessment of the situation, I fear that this person may be overdosing. 
what options do I have available as Citizen X, the Good Samaritan, to help this person who's obviously in distress and incapable at that moment of helping themselves? The first thing you do in any situation like that is you call 911. Um, the second thing you do, and if you have access to it, is to administer Narcan. And what is Narcan? Narcan is a um, medication used to reverse opioid overdoses. Um, it's administered a few different ways, but most commonly, um, it's a nasal spray. Okay. Uh, that gets you know um, administered through a person's nasal cavity, um, and what it does is it essentially rips the opioids off the receptors, which makes the person come back. Okay. Um, breathe again. Um, because it stops that feeling of slowing the world down, so to speak, putting no, you in it's that. It's not about the feeling. It's about the fact that the person is overdosing and dying because the opioid has completely covered their receptor. What, if you can envision it, think of the blanket yeah. that's covering the receptor. Think of the Narcan that's being administered. It's pulling the blanket off. Oh, okay. Um, with that being said, warning, um, it puts the person who's overdosing when they come back into immediate withdrawal because you have now ripped all the opioids off the receptors. Uh, um, it's, it's immediate. Okay. Um, so commonly folks will um, come to and they'll be not so happy. Um, so are they disorientated when they come back or are they yeah. literally coming back no, no, angry? No, no, they're disoriented. Okay. Um, but yeah, they're, they're not happy. Right. Um, but Narcan is something um, that is... Let's explore that a little bit. Is Narcan like some... I honestly don't know. Is Narcan something I can pick up at my local supermarket? No, or is it a go, prescription? How can, does it work? We've come a long way. Um, it used to be only by um, prescription. Uh, it used to be even difficult to get at that. Um, but now I can go into CVS. I can go to Walgreens or Rite Aid. Um, and pay my copay that I would pay for any medication, and I can get Narcan. Now, is that available to anybody or anybody. just you? Nope. So Citizen X listening to this podcast in Fresno, California, yep. can go into their well, local drugstore. It depends on what their insurance is. Oh, okay. Um, but most insurances now in the day and age that we're in um, are covering it. And so is it... So a lot of medications, just like a lot of canned goods and, and eggs and milk that you buy at they the grocery fire. store, they have an expiration date. Yes. Does this have an expiration Absolutely. date? Absolutely. Is it typically, what, a year, year and a half? No, it's, it's I think, no more than a year. Okay. Um, so you're making a small investment to carry, you know. For me, it's $15. And I can tell you every single time I pick up an Arcan, within two weeks, give or take, I've given it to somebody who's needed. Like, I'm not, You've I'm administered not, it? I'm not administering it. I'm giving it to somebody who is in a situation where they're highly likely to overdose or to be in the presence of an overdose. And I give it to them. So they you're have, paying it yes. forward in yep. essence. So that person doesn't necessarily I have, mean, I, I, I teach, I don't just give it to them. I teach them how to administer it. I talk to them about, um, you know, what an overdose looks like, what to expect with administering that can. Now, um, are there, I, I'm sure there are, I'm just not aware of them. Are there organizations or, um, Groups, whether it's sponsored through local police departments or through treatment facilities like the ones that the one that you work at or others in the in the space that offer these classes on how to administer Narcan and 
then at the end, do they dispense Narcan for the people that attend so that they have, you know, again, this whole, this whole theory of paying it forward, I guess, is in my whipped cream and cherries world, that's kind of how you get the message going. One of, one of many avenues, but by, by de-stigmatizing what it is you're talking about here. Yes, organizations do offer, um, you know, community trainings um, where folks can go in, learn the signs and symptoms of an overdose, how to respond to it, um, you know, from A to Z. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we've come very far in infiltrating the community with those resources. That's not so much the case previous to the opioid epidemic. Narcan um, is attached to stigma. Some people, um, a majority um, of people are struggling with, is Narcan a cop-out? Is Narcan a crutch? Um, you know, how many times are you going to overdose? And well, I don't not- know. If, if I'm having a heart attack, how many times should you restart my heart? Absolutely. So I guess that would be my counter to that, to that but, unintelligent argument. But, and again, we can go back to Sigma. Folks do not have the information they need to make appropriate comment um, right appropriate and I and I fully admit I was an unabashed knuckle dragger when I met you I I honestly believed and we're not talking about decades ago people we're talking about five years ago I believe that you know you should send anybody who's not willing to go into treatment I've never been anti-treatment I've always been pro-treatment if you're if you're at a spot in your in your existence, in your in the throes of your addiction, where you realize, you know, like an alcoholic has an epiphany, or um, a smoker has an epiphany, whether it's a, a horrific doctor's appointment, or it's just one of those Saturdays where they go to light the last bud of a pack and they go, "I'm done. I, I need to get the patch, get the gum." Or an alcoholic that need that finds that now's the time I need to start going to meetings. Or in this case, an addict that decides I've had enough. You know, this is well, this is stripping that's my. The thing, Joe. We don't get to decide when someone's ready for treatment. We don't get to decide that today's the day you're going to stop using drugs or alcohol. It's not our choice. It's their process. It's their recovery. It's their, it, it's their journey. And I get that. But I think where, where people have an issue is, you know, alcohol's a legal drug. And alcohol is the most deadly drug of all drugs, including opioids. But legal. Right. And so I think the stigma comes from the fact that these people are using and abusing illegal drugs. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big, that's something that I think needs to be worked on in the consciousness of the populace to help people understand that you have to look past what they're using and look more towards what they're suffering with. And to your point, it could either be traumatic experiences from their past that led them down this path, the, the environment in which the generations of users have kind of piece together the person that's using today or whether it's the sports injury that turns into a medication that turns into a street drug and then turns into, you know, injections. I think everybody's story is different and their path is different. But like I said, five years ago, I just thought that if you were, if you were a junkie and I, and I, and I cringe at using that term these days because it's such an archaic term, but I used to believe that if you were a junkie, then, you know, they should ship you off to an island with mountains of heroin and allow you to just do whatever you wanted to do, but stop necessarily, you know, 
I don't know, clogging up ERs and, and, and driving up the cost of healthcare. And, you know, I looked at it from more of a financial business perspective rather than a compassionate perspective. And I, I do appreciate the fact that in, you know, our time together, you've really spun me 180 degrees from that. Now, I, I believe that, you know, to your point, not everybody's ready for treatment. And some people are, are think they're ready, go into treatment, bounce out, relapse, come back, bounce out, relapse, come back. And, you know, it kind of leads back to that, well, how many times would, you know, do you have to let somebody come into treatment? Well, I don't know. How many times would you jumpstart a person suffering from a heart attack's heart? You know, you can't tell the guy to put the brat down three weeks after the massive coronary. People are going to do things at their own pace. And so I think that that leads us down to um, now that we've talked about, you know, the different drugs that are abused, how, how that kind of infiltrates society. Um, let's talk more now around treatment because this is really your sweet spot. I couldn't line this up any bit better. I'm throwing a meatball down the middle. Um, how many different styles of treatment are out there? And is this still a throw a dart at the board type of approach? Are we still, you know, whether it's medication assisted treatment, whether it's counseling, whether it's a combination, what, what do you see? Do you see any that are more successful than others, Kate? I don't know. But it, I mean, there are so many different ways to look at treatment. There is the old-fashioned um, way that people believe it's abstinence-based. It's Cold turkey. You just stop and you white-knuckle it and you deal with it and you move on. Um, I think that's archaic. I don't... Um, I, I, I'm not a... Um, I, I don't buy into that. I don't believe in that um, because I think so much more needs to be done to unravel and uncover the root of um, the addiction and the possible trauma, um, depression, anxiety. Uh, who, there's so many different levels and so many different layers. Um, so you have abstinence-based. Abstinence you have folks who um, will do medication-assisted treatment, um, which comes in um, different, you know, different avenues. You can do um, medication as a treatment with methadone. You can um, use buprenorphine, otherwise known as Suboxone, or you can do Vivitrol. Um, those are the most commonly um, used um, forms of medication as a treatment. But what I need to drive home is it's medication-assisted treatment. It's not medication it's medication-assisted treatment. So when I say that, I say it as you can't just go into an opioid treatment program, get your dose of methadone, and go home and call it a day. That's not treatment. Treatment is you come to the clinic every day, you get your dose of, of methadone, and you are required to go to individual counseling and group counseling. Uh, you're seeing a doctor. Uh, you're getting referrals to different um, levels of care, you know, we're collaborating with your psychiatrist, we're collaborating with your PCP, um, maybe with an outpatient therapist, but it's treatment because we know one doesn't work without the other. So what do you say to people? And I hear this a lot. I read it a lot online. What do you say to people that claim that medication assisted treatment is trading one addiction for another? I call bullshit. Okay. I love that because you're in this field. And so I really want a detailed answer on that because 
there are people that believe that when they stop using, you know, when a patient stops using heroin and starts going into treatment, say it's Suboxone or say it's methadone, without a definitive timeline associated with or a definitive step down program to becoming drug free at the end, then all we're doing is trading one big pharma product for another big pharma product. How do we, how do you dispel that myth to people? Because it's, it, trust me, it's one of those perceptions that is becoming some people's realities. So you're coming into a clinic every day. You are receiving a poured dose, a consistent poured dose of methadone, let's say. You're being observed by a nurse. Um, you're not putting fentanyl or heroin in a needle and injecting it. Um, and you're not you know, prescribing to other um, risky behaviors. You're coming in, you're receiving a dose that keeps you stabilized in which you don't experience withdrawal symptoms and urges and cravings. Um, your body has now accepted this stabilized dose, and it allows you to function normally. Okay. Well, the flip side of that coin, and this is why I wanted to, to bring this up, the flip side of that coin is those people on the other side of the aisle will argue that Suboxone and Methadone are also addictive, correct? Absolutely. Okay. So how then, when you have a patient in treatment with you and you're starting them on Suboxone or you're starting them on Methadone and you're putting them into counseling, into group therapy, and they're working their plan and they're moving towards normalcy or a, a brighter future than the past that they're leaving behind, how then do you help them move towards no longer being dependent on the medication? Is there, is there a... Has the ADA or um, the Physicians Group of America come up with some sort of profile or um, guideline to help step patients so that they walk out of a clinic at the end of one year, three years, 10 years, 20 years, nope. and they are addiction-free? No. Um, you... We, we can't play God and decide when somebody should stop using, start like we, we, we can't dictate someone else's journey. So with that being said, I've had, when I was working as a director of an opioid treatment program, patients who had been in treatment at the methadone clinic for 20 years. That's their journey. Now, with, when I say 20 years, they're not using any illicit opioids. Yeah. Benzos, they're completely substance-free. They're working full-time jobs. They've regained their family relationships. They've opened their own businesses. They've gone back to the law firm that they, you know, once worked. They're functioning at a level in which they're sustaining a happy life. And if they feel like I. Or, you know, I can't um, take the risk of, of losing that. Who am I to say you have to get off it? Right. It's not, I, I think we, we run down a really slippery slope of saying you can only be on methadone for 
three years and then we're going to cut you off or, you know, we'll taper you down. Right. What if that person hasn't even begun to unravel the years of trauma or depression or, you know, many other mental health disorders? It takes years of, of counseling. We can't determine someone else's existence when it comes to that. If they're not putting a needle in their arm and subjecting themselves to HIV, hepatitis C, um, and they're not stealing, they're not robbing banks, they're not, you know, putting their children in harm, they're not throwing needles out the window. If they're coming to a program where they're observed on a daily basis by medical professionals to get a medication that's going to save their lives, I don't think we have the right to decide how long that goes on for. I think it's a good point. I mean, everyone's going to have their, their own beliefs. My ideal? Yes. Ideally, I... I would love to say, you know, you know, let's start tapering you and, you know, we'll, we'll step you down from methadone to Vivitrol. That's great. I, I love that. I love when patients would come to me and say, you know what, I feel, I feel good. I'm ready to do this. But let me tell you, that person has been in treatment for years. They've been, um, you know, 100% on with their counseling. You know, they're taking psychotropic medications for their mental health disorders. They're compliant um, and they're ready. And it's wonderful when you can take somebody who's coming to a clinic, you know, every day or every few days because there's take-homes and be able to get them to a once-a-month Vivitrol injection. Awesome. But I'm not going to force somebody to do it. I'm just not. Just ballpark. What do you think the percentages of compliant versus non-compliant patients are? I can't. I mean, is it is it close to 50-50? Is it 80-20, non? You know, because one thing I can speak to is in the, the years we've been together, you have shared some amazing, and I, that's kind of what I want to cycle into to next is some of the success stories that you've had through treatment, through patients that you've worked with. And, you know, we'll also touch on some of the, the, the sad stories, you know, where the, the treatment worked or so to speak worked and then the, the patient relapsed years later and and it was either fatal or they find themselves back in recovery but um i i guess what i'm what i'm trying to drive home is you know i think the other side of that argument looks at it and thinks to themselves if they're in counseling for years they're compliant um they're under the care of, you know, I, I believe counselors have to have a master's degree and be licensed in the state or to at least licensed. The counselors no. don't? No. Clinicians? Clinicians, counselors, interchange. Oh, I thought, I thought they had to be licensed or no. at least have an, an advanced degree to do that. Um, it used to be master's level, but now um, certain insurances will accept a bachelor's level. And I wonder if that's not because they're seeing such an influx of patients that they have to drop that, that threshold a mm. little bit to, to accommodate. But even back to that, to that original thought, so they're going to treatment, they're seeing these clinicians on a normal basis, they're hitting their group, they've, they've complied enough to have take-homes, we have years and years and years of track records. They're also under the care of a medical director at the facility, correct? Mm -hmm. So they're receiving medical care. So if a doctor and a clinician says, I've worked with this patient for X years, this patient has demonstrated themselves to be a model patient. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones that I think, you know, again, 
what do I know? I sell candy and I do a podcast. But those are the ones that I think should be deemed for step down and tapers off of the drugs because oh, they absolutely. Ha- but again, I think what we're we're not meeting in the middle at is you can't force a patient to do it. You can't say, you know what, you've done you know really good and you're I, I in my opinion you're stabilized and. You know, you've gone to counseling, you've been compliant, it's time to get off methadone, we're going to start your taper. It just doesn't happen that way. Uh, we educate. There are taper groups. Um, you know, if a patient is, you know, on, you know, questionable, you know, in the sense that maybe I'm ready to taper and get off methadone, we put them in taper groups where it's all educational information about how to taper, um, what that would look like, how you meet with the doctor, you, you know, you determine how many milligrams, how often that you're going to taper down. Well, I think these are all really, really good points. Um, but when we think about the opioid crisis in the U.S., we're taping this episode in New Hampshire. How does New Hampshire or the Northeast in general rank nationally in regards to saturation of opioid addiction among the, the population. Saturated in the country. Are we really? So mm-hmm. although it touches every state, I'm sure it's it's prevalent oh, it's in all everywhere. 50 states. Yep. Uh, New Hampshire and the Northeast as a region is is one of the highest. Yep. What New would Hampshire, be, Vermont, Maine, Mass, Rhode Island. So if you use the region. So what 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 are the other regions? Say the top three. So is it West Coast? Do you see a lot of it in the Pacific West uh, Pacific Northwest or I, West Coast? I can't speak to that. I, the West Coast is more... Um, methamphetamine then it is heroin ah. um, that's kind of the way it's yeah when I been, when I first started hearing about heroin and the reason I'm bringing it up is because I'm just using personal experience when I first started hearing about heroin addiction um, we're talking early 90s mid 90s is when I started hearing about it it was primarily based in like the upper Midwest in Detroit Michigan uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, and then also in the Southeast, Georgia, Mississippi, Florida. Those were the the news stories that I was seeing popping. You know, Florida is always on the news, um, but it was those were the the areas. And then to see that the Northeast was like this boom explosion, it, it made me just think to myself, like, why? And I and I wonder if it's not the population centers are more dense in the Northeast versus those other parts of the country, or I think you have to also consider a reporting factor. You know, ah. you have data because it gets reported. Um, you know, so when you mentioned, you know, back in the 90s, it, you know, certain saturations, you know, that you only heard of heroin. I, I don't know how accurate that is. Um, I just know that um, we are definitely looking at a higher saturation in this area of the country. And for whatever reason, I, I can't speak to that. No, that's that's totally fine. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it as we, we spoke about, it touches all 50 states. It touches women, men, elderly, young, children. It touches everybody. And if you have somebody in your family that's been suffering um, with addiction or has been fighting with addiction and is looking for an opportunity to, to seek treatment, there are several options available to you. I'll let Kate kind of talk about, 
you know, how to seek out treatment if you're if you're in a in a space where either you or one of your family members is is nearing that that end of their journey into wanting to enter into recovery. What can I do, Kate? I'm I'm patient X. I've decided on my own fruition that I'm done. I want to be done. What's my first step as a patient who's struggling with an opioid addiction to to seek treatment? How do I seek treatment? What do I do? If you have a um, primary care prescriber, um, I think that's a great avenue uh, because they are um, within reach of lots and lots and lots of resources. Um, Every state has a hotline number that you can go to. Um, Now, I am from Mass. Um, I may live in New Hampshire now, but most of my um, my experience in the field has been in Massachusetts. Um, there's a BSAS, which is the Bureau of Substance Abuse Services hotline. Every state has one. Um, and it's kind of a treatment locator, if you will. You call, you let them know what's going on, and they will help um, access, um, you know, give you numbers to call, um, find a bed for you, depending on, you know, um, what the service is. Uh, but if you're ready to get into treatment, the first step um, treatment-wise is detox because you need to be medically stabilized. Absolutely. And there is a national number that can be used. You can go to drug help, uh, drughelpline.org. And the number to dial, if you happen to have a family member or friend or you're a friend of somebody who is seeking treatment, feel free to call 1-888-633-3239. And again, that's drughelpline.org. Um, it's a national drug helpline. It offers 24 hours, seven days a week, drug and alcohol help to those struggling with addiction. Call the national hotline for drug abuse today to receive information regarding treatment and recovery. Um, Kate, this, is, this has been informative for anybody listening, I'm sure. Uh, but, you know, in true brain droppings fashion, We've ate up 50 minutes of very um, intense conversation about the opioid crisis in the U.S. and worldwide. Uh, Let's talk about, let's use the last 10 minutes to talk about some uplifting stories. Tell me some success stories of treatment with people that you've interacted with in your career. You know, again, we never mention names on this podcast to protect the innocent, and Kate can't because of the laws of HIPAA, but I think you can provide um, success stories of people that you saw come in at their lowest of lows and you've watched them, you know, struggle and fight and lose and come back and fight and win and have, you know, moved on to successful careers or successful places in society. Talk about some of the, the good work, you know, the stuff that allows you to get up in the morning and want to keep doing this day in and day out, because I don't have the intestinal fortitude to do it. I would, I would be too, too jaded, I think, over time. And one of the beautiful things that I get to see with you every single day is that you have an undying passion flame for what you do, for helping others. Um, you know, for people to, to, to know Kate is to know that, you know, before she even got involved in this field, she was helping others. She was an educator. Um, and now she's in this field. She's a compliance manager. She ensures that multiple clinics across multiple states are well within their their uh, regulations to operate within the state. So it's like you've never left the genre of trying to help. So tell me about a few times where that help has, has turned into a good thing. 
Wow. Um, there are dozens of success stories. Um, for like some many, of your favorites. For as many um, patients that um, have not been successful, um, I have dozens that have been. I have um, a story of a patient when I was at the residential program who I was in my office one day and uh, I turned around and let me go back for a second. You just couldn't leave the campus. You had to get a pass to leave. You know, there had to be communication. We needed to know where you were going. Um, and I kind of had my pulse on that at all times. And I turn around, cuss up into my, you know, in my view, and there's a patient that has been struggling horrendously with staying in treatment, leaving, walking down the street. And I jumped up. I ran out to the sidewalk. Um, I managed to stop him and sat with him probably for close to an hour trying to get him to stay and not go out and not use again because he made it very clear that if he went, um, if he you know kept going, he would uh, he would use till he died. Um, that's how horrific his history is or was. Um, he couldn't take it anymore, um, and his will to live was gone. But the universe had us in the right place, and I was able to get him to stay. Um, and through staying, he um, moved on to, uh, he stepped down, if you will, um, from a residential program that, you know, was heavily, um, you know, staffed to um, sober housing, uh, down to independent living. He now um, has been clean for almost six years and um, is a miracle. It's truly a miracle. And um, those, those are the stories that keep me going. I um, have a patient that she's a beautiful, beautiful soul, and she came back a couple times, um, but always vulnerable, always open, um, you know, wanted to live, but unfortunately was brought up in a very, very um, dysfunctional environment where um, at a very young age um, had, uh, um, who had parents who exposed her to some horrific things and um, started using it at a very young age and progressed into early adulthood. Uh, couldn't go a day, couldn't go six hours without using. Um, she was in treatment probably a combined year and a half. Um, she has been sober now close to six years. Um, still contacts me. Still says thank you. Um, has put her life back together. Hasn't used, hasn't wanted to use. Has a job. Has her family. Her sisters, I should say. Um, but yeah, I... What is you your, can't really retell the stories. It's, so it's what is your fun. most prized possession for your time as a program director or the manager of your halfway house in, in that community? 
you have a very prized possession that you keep. And the I letters. Yes. Talk to me about the letters. Oh, I thought I lost those letters for a long time. I have letters that I've saved throughout the years from patients. A big box, people. We're not talking about an envelope. This is a box of letters, handwritten to yeah, Kate. They're pretty amazing. Um, they're from patients who have made it, who have worked and struggled and fought their demons, um, but I never let them fight them alone. Um, and I think that's where a lot of my um, empathy comes in. I just never let them be alone. So I have so many letters from patients who say that they're clean because of me. And I always say, no, I'm you're not clean because of me. I was simply the vessel. Um, they did the work. I just did the support. Um, but I have so many letters and cards, and they're very, very, very important to me. And um, I moved and thought I lost them. And I can't tell you the day I found them, I was skipping and jumping for joy. And I read those when I'm really, really struggling. Um, you know, whether it be, you know, another patient that I see who's struggling or, you know, just day-to-day things. I read those letters, and if those patients can turn their lives around and live, it's going to be okay. And I think that's a great spot to to kind of cap this off. I want to thank the lovely Kate for providing us all with an hour of awesome content, educationally based. Um this was not an easy podcast to, to do when most of the ones I do are silly and lighthearted, but it is a topic that I know Kate's super uh, dialed in on. It's one that I've become more educated on in the last five years. And, you know, if the podcast reaches even one person or one person's group of people around them that can either better educate them or help motivate them towards treatment, then it's, it's completely worth it. Um, the beautiful thing about podcasts is they last in the interwebs forever. So whether you're hearing this in May of 2019 or in January of 2025, um, hopefully this serves as an educational point for you or a motivational point to help you seek treatment or help somebody um, that you care about seek treatment and, you know, get back on the path of success because I believe that everybody is destined for success in their lives in one facet or another and any life wasted is a life lost. So please keep your head up, stay positive, um, keep listening to Brain Droppings podcasts. I promise you the next one will be a little more lighthearted and then I'll be right back to Super Silly right after that. As always, follow us on Twitter at droppings underscore pod or email us at brain droppings pod at Gmail with any show ideas or comments you have on the episodes you listen to. Um, you can find us on Spotify, Pandora, Google Play Music, iTunes, or if you have a Google enabled device, uh, an Amazon enabled device, simply say Alexa, play Brain Droppings podcast on TuneIn, and you'll get the most up to date episodes. For the lovely Kate, I am Joe Show. Thank you for listening to episode 11, The Opioid Crisis.